Good morning, everybody. You know, uh, sooner or later, we all have to face accusers. Uh, We all have to give account of ourselves at some time or another in our lives before a hostile audience, before a hostile authority. Um, Who might that be? Well, it might be a teacher or um, the principal. And uh, um, if you ever are holed up in front of the school principal, it's vitally important to take your child with you. Because they'll know how to deal with them. It could be that you've got to give an account of yourself before a board or a boss or a bishop. Um, Or it might be a court of law and you're before a judge and or a jury. But one way or another, sooner or later, facing a hostile authority figure uh, is a part of life. And in our text today, because we're moving through the book of Acts in our text today, we see Paul uh, face a hostile judge and a hostile body of accusers, people in authority over him. And the text is a confusing one. Paul actually, by and large, behaves quite differently to how we're expecting. You you see, for a long time now, Paul has been making his journey up to Jerusalem, just as Jesus did. Um, He's been doing that with the expectation of suffering and hardships and being handed over to the Gentiles, just as Jesus did. Um, He knows that these things await him. Um, He's walking in the footsteps of Christ. Uh, And um, what do we expect? Well, this is the Sanhedrin. Um, I, for one, I'm, I'm expecting him to to behave stoically, submissively, and to silently accept his fate. But actually, that's not what he does at all. And uh, people don't really know what to make of Paul's behavior. Uh, Pre-modern commentators are actually particularly harsh on him, um, looking at Paul, from the perspective of cultures that say value loyalty to the crown above everything, Paul's behavior looks, looks profoundly rebellious, not submissive, even treasonous. His insistence on having both the first word and the last word seems insolent, insubordinate, disrespectful. Furthermore, Paul doesn't seem to have any thought of giving his testimony or trying to win his hearers for Christ, and that seems very unlike him. Last week we saw Paul in front of the mob out on the streets in Jerusalem, um, and they're trying to kill him, but Paul keeps his head. He builds bridges. He sympathizes and he empathizes with his audience, and he gives his testimony, and he gives his testimony in such a manner as to most likely leads to conviction and, and conversions. But this week, it's almost like he, he chooses the opposite tact, opposite tactic. Um, furthermore, there, there's another problem. Um, Paul's behavior, um, this kind of rebelliousness, this outspokenness, it seems at odds with what Paul himself teaches in a variety of places, that we are to be in submission to all governing authorities, as is right and good. Um, So so what's what's going on here? 
How are we to understand Paul and his behavior? Does he, you know, I mean, this is the Sanhedrin. Does he freak out? And, and, and does, he, uh, does he fail to live up to his own teaching? Does, does he miss God's plan for his life? Uh, does he fail to practice what he preaches? I mean, it's okay if that's what ha- is what's happening. We, we know, you know no one's claiming that Paul is sinless. We know that Jesus is with him. We know that Jesus loves him. We know that Jesus will fulfill the purposes he has for him. But, but you know, is this, is this, when the heat is on, are we watching Paul fail? Or if Paul is not failing, if he's actually conforming his behavior to the image of Christ, and if he's behaving in keeping with his own teaching, if, if this is what it means to be in submission to governing authorities... Well, then maybe we'll find that he's right. It's just that we haven't understood him. So what's going on here? Let's, let's take a closer look. Paul is, as we've said, he's facing the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the Jews, the inner circle of the Jewish religious establishment in Jerusalem. The, the high priest was the supreme judge sitting in the chair of Moses, so to speak. It is entirely possible that Paul believes that he is now facing the greatest danger of his life. Technically, the Sanhedrin under Roman rule, technically the Sanhedrin does not have the authority to issue the death penalty, but that's never stopped them in the past, has it? I mean, that's just a mere technicality. They can get around that when they want to. They killed Jesus and they killed Stephen. And of course, on that day when they killed Stephen, Paul was there as one of them. And in the early chapters of Acts, we see uh, Peter and the other apostles survive somewhat miraculously being hauled before the Sanhedrin twice. On the first time, they're led off with warnings. On the second time, with floggings. So if Paul was in fear of his life, he'd be entirely justified in that fear. But actually, straight out of the blocks, Paul looks his accusers in the eye. And he says, in effect, my conscience is clean before God just as it ought to be. I've done nothing wrong. And I, for one, was not expecting Paul to do that. I mean, in, usually in any court of law or in a trial, the presiding judge gets the first word and charges have to be laid and made and uh, um, uh, spoken before there's any need for the defendant or his team to answer. And Paul's statement is not so much a theological reflection on his life as a bold way of saying, I utterly reject any suggestion that I have done anything wrong that requires me to give an explanation of myself to you. Paul's words are startlingly bold and um, have a predictable incendiary effect. The high priest issuing an order that he be struck on the mouth. This rebuke was intended to communicate to Paul and to all that the high priest considers both the content of his speech and the manner of his speech to be unacceptable. The high priest rejects any suggestion that Paul is innocent before God and he rebukes the manner of Paul's speech as insubordinate, arrogant, insolent, disrespectful. Paul is not to be spoken. Sorry, Paul is not to speak until he is spoken to. Well, how does Paul react to that? Well, he ups the ante, doesn't he? And he fires back his own judgment. And in calling the high priest a hypocrite, 
for sitting down to judge according to the law of Moses, yet violating the law of Moses with this command, in firing back his own judgment, Paul is rejecting that man's authority, rejecting him as judge and rejecting him as judge over himself. Uh, Those standing by Paul believe that Paul has now gone too far, and Paul also seems to share this view, for he retracts his comment. Nevertheless, again, Paul, again insisting on uh, controlling the engagement, he, 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 he lobs in an, a new hand grenade. And Luke tells us what Paul said and why it was such an incendiary thing to say in that company. Um, in an assembly that's made up of essentially two parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, Paul not only declares his allegiance to the Pharisee party, but he says uh, something that he knows will completely divide the room. Um, And if that was his goal, if it was his goal to divide the room, then he achieves that goal superbly. The meeting has to be terminated because the Sanhedrin has been effectively sabotaged. It, It has been rendered incapable of making any judgment, and the ending is farcical. But we come back to our question, did Paul do the right thing? Well, eight weeks ago, Uh, in the context of a series of sermons about marriage, I spoke about headship and submission between husbands and wives. And my text was Paul's letter, Paul's own letter, to the Ephesians chapter 5. And in that sermon, I made two points. Firstly, it is commonly assumed that submission and obedience are the same thing. But they are not the same thing. The apostles never ask wives to obey their husbands, but they do ask them to submit to their husbands. They never tell wives to obey their husbands, but they do tell children to obey their parents and slaves to obey their masters. Submission is not the same thing as obedience. What is submission? Well, submission is recognizing God-given authority, and especially God-given headship. In that case, what is headship? Well, that was my second point. It is commonly assumed that the role of the head is to make decisions. It is very common, almost universally assumed, that headship means being the boss, telling people what to do, making decisions. Headship equals making decisions. But that equation, biblically speaking, is quite wrong. And it is wrong because the job of the head, biblically speaking, is not to control the decision-making process. Oh, to be sure, as 21st century Westerners, we we make decisions up here and uh, and, and decide things in our head. But according to the Bible, in other words, to think theologically, according to the Bible, where are decisions made? They're made in the heart. And where is the heart? The heart is in the body. Where is the correct place to make decisions? Where does authority reside for decision-making? In the body. Once we know this, we can see that indeed the idea with Jews and Christians alike, the idea is that the authority to make decisions resides not with the head, but in the body. Decisions are made in the body. The head represents the body. What do heads do? Heads Heads see and hear and speak. They represent, in other words. 
so then, in the New Testament, whether we're looking at Jews or Christians, when it, time, when it comes time to make a decision or to, to uh, settle a controversy or to find the way forward, um, the decision is always made in the context of a council or a meeting or an assembly. The decision is announced by the head, but it is not made by the head. Now, with these things in mind, we can now see Paul's interaction uh, with the Sanhedrin in a different light. And we can answer the question that we posed at the beginning of this talk. Paul actually is not failing to practice what he preaches. He's, he's not... He, he's not This is not a cowardly retreat from his divine destiny. Rather, actually, he's he's imitating Christ and he's uh, um, actually showing us what submission looks like. Firstly, Paul's interaction with Ananias, the high priest. Paul, right at the start of the trial, does not reject the authority of the Sanhedrin to judge him, but he does reject the idea that there is any need for the Sanhedrin to judge him. He is not rejecting them as an authorized court, but he is rejecting the idea that they should stand in judgment of him. And in Christ, he has the confidence to say this clearly. He has, um, as as the psychologists say, he has assertiveness. Um, not meaning that he's good at controlling or forcing others, but rather that he is able to speak the truth and the truth about himself without being controlled by the fear of others, without being controlled by the fear of what others might think or the fear of how others might react. And when in the Sanhedrin Jesus was struck in the face, he replied, If I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? John 18, 23. Jesus, um, as we see Paul uh, also copying here, Jesus calls those in authority over him to account for how they use that authority. Which brings us to Paul's response to being struck in the face by way of order from Ananias, the high priest. Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. On the one hand, Paul's words are exactly right. Ananias' actions are hypocritical because as a judge, Ananias is breaking the law. Jesus is also quite happy to label hypocritical religious leaders as whitewashed. Uh, The idea, which actually begins um, in an oracle from uh, Ezekiel, the idea of being whitewashed is looking solid and sound on the outside whilst being rotten underneath. And Paul's judgment on that day will stand. Um, Paul's made the judgment and it will stand. At this point in time, Ananias has been high priest for 10 years and he'll hold this office for another year or two. Um, But this guy was famous for his greed and his thuggery. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus tells us how he used violence to confiscate uh, tithes from ordinary priests. And the Talmud preserves a parody of of Psalm 24 Uh, sung as a hymn of praise to his greed and love of Um, self-indulgence. 
as of the day of this trial, Ananias has about nine years to live. Because in AD 66, when war breaks out between Judea and Rome, um, militant nationalists will hunt him down and kill him. So Paul's words here are prophetic. So if Paul is right to say what he said, why did he then go and retract it? Verse 4, those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Paul agrees with those standing by him that it was inappropriate for him to judge his judge. Yet nevertheless, Paul, in his understanding of submission and headship, is able to follow Jesus in doing something that actually we find quite difficult. On the one hand, Paul respects the office. Without God-given headship, we have chaos. Ananias is the God-given head of the Sanhedrin. He does and will continue, Paul does and will continue to respect that headship, which is to say he will submit to it. On the other hand, Paul knows that submission is not the same thing as obedience. And when a God-given official standing in a God-given office misuses that power, it is your duty to that office and to God to remind that person of what they ought to be doing if they're not doing that. Indeed, it is important that the Sanhedrin, even though it is, it is God-given authority, it is important that the Sanhedrin does not judge Paul because they do not know what they're doing. Paul is Christ's apostle. To judge him is a very dangerous thing to do indeed. And that brings us to Paul's theological hand grenade and its startling effectiveness, his declaration that as a Pharisee, he is on trial because of his hope in the resurrection of the dead. And again, now that we've revised our understanding of headship and submission, this will help us to understand what Paul is doing here. Paul knows that making a judgment on him is not Ananias' job. Ananias is the head, but not the body. Any decision to be made about Paul must be made by the body, not by the head. The head cannot represent a decision until there is unity in the body until there is a unanimous decision. So Paul saves Ananias and the Sanhedrin from judging him by sabotaging the process. Um, he, he saves them that they, they, they can't come to unity. It's 11, all right? We'll, uh, we'll pause the recording and we'll take uh, two minutes of silence. You're going to tell us when um, to come back. Uh, Paul um, saves the Sanhedrin and Ananias from the mistake of judging him uh, by dividing the body and in doing so uh, short-circuiting the decision-making process and that was a loving thing to do. Uh, yes, it's true, uh, Paul in doing so saves his own life. Uh, are not in significant detail. But because we now realize uh, Paul is actually imitating Christ and acting consistently with his own teaching, we must allow that Paul's escape from the Sanhedrin is not a result of cowardice or bad behavior, but actually 
a result of courage combined with the grace of God. Uh, what do we get out of this for ourselves? Well, um, when we understand submission and headship correctly, it will transform our relationships with structures of authority in our lives. Uh, biblically speaking, wives are to submit to husbands, we are to submit to each other, and we are, submit, we are to submit to God-given authority over us, such as governors, the state, elders, bosses, and teachers. We, we respect the office. Um, to quote biblical theologian Bishop N.T. Wright, quote, respecting the office does not rule out, but rather it includes the duty to remind the people currently operating the structures what it is they ought to be doing, and for that matter, not doing, end quote. Submission isn't necessarily closed mouthed. In fact, it often can't be. And that brings me back, I guess, to the idea of assertiveness. Psychologists know that assertiveness, as they define it, is an indicator of a healthy, mature mind. How, how might we define it? Well, once again, um, assertiveness is the ability to speak the truth and the truth about oneself without being controlled by the fear of others or the fear of what others might think or the fear of how others might react. Um, once I was uh, in an office uh, being examined by um, someone to whom I was accountable as a hospital chaplain. Uh, she asked me a question and then she waited for my answer. She had to wait quite a long time. I sat there opening my mouth occasionally and then shutting it again and then opening it again and then shutting it again a little bit like a goldfish in a fishbowl. After a while she said to me, you're censoring, aren't you? And I said to her, censoring? What's that? And she said, Censoring is when you know the answer, but you keep on rejecting one way of saying it after another for fear of offending me. And I said, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> she said, just say it. So I did. Assertiveness is extremely important in all relationships because no one can know what we're thinking or feeling unless we tell them. Uh, at the 4 p.m. service yesterday afternoon, uh, some, somebody asked, uh, yeah, but um, um, you know, uh, we can't do that because, because we'll offend people. Uh, well, if that's your fear, a good place to start is, is to articulate your fear. Um, I'd like to tell you what I'm thinking, but I'm scared I will offend you. That's a good place to start because it's true, and it's true about you. Um, assertiveness, uh, a word that I'm not comfortable with, but an idea that I love. Assertiveness is really simply not being controlled by fear of others or how they'll react. If we are guided by love, we won't be controlled by fear. Now, I'm not, advoca I'm not advocating the idea that we always say things simply because they are true. Sometimes, out of love, we choose not to say things that are true. But it is very important not to say things because of fear. 
if we're guided by love, we won't be controlled by fear. And that will mean that just occasionally, and especially perhaps when we're facing a hostile audience, a hostile authority, we'll find the courage to say things that others think are unsayable, not only because they are true, but also because it is the loving thing to do. Fiat justitia ruet caelum, which I think means, let justice be done, though the skies fall. And the Lord be with you all.